You're listening to Advancing Our Church. Welcome to Advancing Our Church, a Changing Our World podcast about Catholic stewardship, leadership, and advancement. I'm Jim Friend. Thanks for downloading our podcast today. As we come off of National Vocations Awareness Week, on behalf of all of us at Changing Our World and especially the Advancing Our Church podcast, we want to extend a special thanks to all those men and women who accepted a vocation to the priesthood, diaconate, or religious life. These are not easy times for someone to say yes to a vocation in a public way. And yet, thanks be to God, so much good would not be done in our world today if it were not for men and women around the world who said yes to their vocation. And we ask you to say a prayer for Vocations Week, not only for these men and women, but also for those family members of those men and women who are considering a vocation. Way back at the beginning of my podcast in episode four, I interviewed Monsignor Andy Baker, who is the Vocations Director at Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Maryland. I remember Monsignor telling me that it was his family members who made it comfortable for him and his brother to say yes to their vocation. So don't underestimate the influence that you may have on the vocations crisis today. Recruitment starts at home with an openness to have that dialogue. I encourage you to go back and listen to episode four if you're so inclined. Now, let's get to work. So let's talk with someone else who is advancing the mission of our church today, Mrs. Julianne Stans. Julianne is an accomplished author, speaker, and a consultant for the USCCB, But most of the time, you can find Julianne in her home diocese of Green Bay, where she leads the evangelization efforts for Bishop David Ricken. I interviewed Julianne about her latest book last week, and it's called Start with Jesus. And I think you'll learn a lot in this interview about parish life, evangelization, and really meeting people where they're at today. And so, without further ado, here is Julianne Stans. Well, we're here with Julianne Stans, the author of Start with Jesus. Julianne, uh, it's great to be with you again today. Thank you, Jim. It's lovely to be with you and all your listeners, too. I was thinking the first time that we met, uh, we were in the the Archdiocese of Miami at a stewardship conference. And ironically, we were both working in the Diocese of Green Bay at the time. So instead of coming across the parking lot, we went down to Miami (laughs) for our first meeting. But we had you on the podcast then. You were the keynote speaker at the stewardship conference. And congratulations on your new book. Thank you. It's been great. The stewardship conference in Miami was a wonderful opportunity. It was focused on family faith formation and how we can help our families grow in faith. And I made reference actually to the book a couple of times when I was down in Miami, just because I was so excited about it. But it's finally here. It was released just a couple of weeks ago. And um, by all accounts, it seems to be doing well, which is great. Um, Congratulations. So Julianne, before we talk about your book, which I I absolutely want to talk about, and I I, I did read it, how do you start as a parish youth minister, go into religious education, and then wind up years later at the Convocation for Catholic Bishops as the MC? I mean, what a what an amazing journey you've been on. I'd just love to hear a little bit about it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, and I don't know is the answer to that. Only God knows because <laughs> I, I often tell people that if I had my way, yeah. I would be home in Ireland in my own village and I'd be working somewhere in Ireland. But um, I kind of had a, a life-changing encounter with, um, with our Lord, actually, when I was about 16 or 17. And I climbed what's called Ireland's holiest mountain. It was Crow Patrick. And I just had this moment that clearly came from the Holy Spirit because it wasn't even a thought in my head and as the sun was going down and we had climbed for hours up this mountain I just remember saying to God you know how amazing um, it is to see sunrises and sunsets and and God's love is like that it comes up and it comes up every day for us whether we see it or not and that was the thought that went through my head and then the next thing was 
Lord, you know, my life is in your hands wherever you go. I actually said, you know, wherever you blow my sails, um, I will row my boat. And so um, I was working in um, Matter Day, which is um, uh, actually is now a se- it was a seminary um, at the time. It was um, intaking lay students for theology, and I was teaching first year theology students, and I had them in religious ed as I was coming out of a master's and going into a. Um, a PhD program, and um, I decided to take a career break, essentially, kind of a sabbatical, because I had been studying for for a long period of time, and um, went to a professor, a really bright man, and said, you know, um, I think I've spent a lot of time in the academic world of the church, and and he said, yeah, you know, you kind of want to see the world and explore. He's very wise, and said, why don't you just get out there? And I said, well, where will I find a job? He said, just go down to the notice board. There's there's jobs coming in from all over the world looking for religion teachers. And so I went down, and there was a job for a very, very small little parish um, in northern Wisconsin, and I took that for a year, then a year became three, and three became the day I met my husband, and I've been here ever since. But um, I came over, interestingly enough, I thought I was coming over to teach second grade religion in a Catholic school, and I was. But at the same time, I learned that they had a need for a director of religious education. And I didn't really know what that was, because we don't have religious education programs in Ireland. Um, Our schools are fully funded, and so um, religious education is part of the ethos of all state schools. And that's changed a little bit now, but um, at the time, I didn't even have a framework for what a, a religious ed director did or a catechist did. And so um, I literally jumped into it with, I would say, not, not my eyes wide open, but f- fully with two feet uh, flying behind me. And, uh, and then, you know how this goes in parish life. The youth minister quits, and I picked up doing youth ministry and did youth ministry and religious education. It was a catechist, and then RCIA needed some attention. And I was working, so I got to work like a lot of areas of parish life, and then um, took a job um, working in a boarding school for a while. That's where I met my husband, and then came back into ministry again here in the diocese of Green Bay. And um, Bishop Zubik was the the bishop that actually hired me. And so in the same conversation that he hired me, he also told me that he was getting moved and he wouldn't have an opportunity to wor- work with me. But he said, enjoy Green Bay. <laughs> so um, so I've worked um, for Bishop Ricken and served the parishes here ever since then. And your current position here in the diocese? That's a great question. It's <laughs> <laughs> Evolving. <laughs> it has evolved, yeah. I started off director of adult faith formation and then I did adult faith formation with the young adult ministry. And then um, probably most people know me. I became director of new evangelization and started talking about that. Then I went and I did um, director of discipleship and leadership development, which was an incredible experience for me. I got to learn a whole other area of the of church life in terms of leadership development and coaching teams. And now I'm um, director of parish life and evangelization, which I think feels the best fit from all of the experiences, at least at this point. Sure. And you also sit on a committee with Bishop Barron and our mutual friend, Bishop Barris. Yeah. And uh, and tell us a little bit about that committee. Yeah. So um, I was invited about eight and a half years ago to um, serve as a consultant um, on the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops Committee on Evangelization and Catechesis. And um, our current chairman is uh, Bishop Barron, who's, you know, word on fire. He's very, very um, well-known throughout the country. And a lot of the work that I do for the U.S. bishops in terms of consultancy work is I I do some writing. Um, I give opinions and editorial commentary on things. Um, I work with them on... um, 
the project that we spent a lot of time working on as, as consultants um, was the document Living as Missionary Disciples, which articulated a new framework for discipleship for essentially the whole country. And it was a response to Pope Francis's document, Evangelii Gaudium. And um, I was involved in resourcing, writing, kind of helping with the framework around that. And then the entire committee gets involved and kind of takes their knives to it and kind of pairs it down and <laughs> starts again and it was a really fascinating project and so that's been out about a year now which is great but um last year we think two years ago um again not sure quite how this happened but um the united states catholic conference of bishops called a gathering together and um it was the the last time that the bishops called a gathering like this was 1917 and they gathered leaders from all over the country to talk about kind of like the signs of the times and what was going on in this postmodern world and how we speak faith into this culture. And I was the MC along with uh, Bishop Burns from Dallas. Mm-hmm. And we had a lot of fun. It was nerve-wracking. I'm not even going to... It's a huge uh, gathering. Huge. Unprecedented, really. Yeah, 5,000 leaders from, I remember reading the script, from as far away as the Marshall Islands to Maine. <laughs> And um, I think 180 bishops were there and several of the cardinals. And they were, you know, we had lay folk and we had religious and deacons and bishops and cardinals all speaking and paneling together. And um, so I got to emcee a lot of that and really got to see a lot of the behind the scenes of what goes into an experience like that. But the whole... Um, impetus of that was really to respond to Pope Francis as the joy of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean for us here? Um, And one of the comments that the nuncio, Archbishop Christophe Pierre, said to the American church, which I think would be fascinating for your listeners, is, you know, the great hope of Catholicism right now, a large seat of that is in the Americas. And um, there's this great spirit of generosity and entrepreneurship around um, starting apostolates and things like that. And, um, being strong, um, altruistic presence in the in in the community, but beyond that, sharing the light of the gospel, and so um, he really fired up the the Church of the Americas for mission, which was just beautiful too. So uh, a couple of months ago, I was in the Diocese of Camden. I was at the convocation, by the way, a couple of years ago. It was amazing. You did an amazing job as MC. Um, but we were with the Diocese of Camden, and uh, yeah. they were also at the convocation. Yeah. And what they took from it is they mirrored it at the local diocese. So they, they had their own local com- convocation in South Jersey. Have you seen that kind of replication happening around the country? Or what What do you think were the results of the convocation? That's a great question, because I was talking with Donna. Um, I'm going to pronounce her name terribly. Uh, Octaviana Britt, and she was responsible. She was the MC for the convocation mm-hmm. in um, Camden, and she, she and I corresponded before, and we mm-hmm. talked. But I actually spoke at that conference with her just to kind of bring mm-hmm. some of the elements of what happened in Orlando into the local um, diocese and archdiocese and kind of flow throughout that side of the country. And what really impressed me about the local conference was a sincere um, effort to really enculturate what that conference wanted to do in a local sense and really grapple with mission for parishes. So grapple with local issues, grapple with the issues that were most pressing in Camden and really look at um, a framework and a structure to look at that. I thought it was one of the best um, local initiatives that I have ever seen. I mean, it was just incredible. Um, the, kind of use a synodal process where people were brought together on teams and then they led in the convocation that they led wasn't just a kind of a one and done but people gathered and read documents and set forth expectations and ideas and and that was incredible um 
I've seen a similar process roll out throughout the United States in various parts of the country. I just spoke to um, the Diocese of Crookston, Fargo. They mm. collaborate together and how fired up they were to do some work around the convocation. And I know that they have uh, drawn the work of the convocation to their learnings with their parishes. Um, but, you know, if you go down to Texas or you're out in L.A., in California, and you go to the different regions like the San Gabriel Valley, the pastors there that attend the convocation are looking out, reaching, um, are looking at reaching out anew. So it was a moment of great hope, but I think it also gave people some practical um, underpinnings that they could center their work in. And I'm seeing inklings of that continue to grow. Um, I think the work of that is probably going to, I think we always think it's going to happen and bam, we're going to actualize the work within a year. But I think it's going to be, you know, at least five to eight years where we see the effects of that um, movement kind of throughout the country and the impact that it had. Sure. Do you think we'll see another convocation sometime in the future? <laughs> <laughs> well, at one of the, the U.S. bishops' gatherings, or one of the meetings we had, um, there was um, a lot of talk about the convocation. If this went so well, we should plan another one. And I just remember... <laughs> a know, groan throughout a groan. the audience. <laughs> it's like, oh, gosh, because it was yeah. so much intense work. But yeah. the, people came back so energized by sure. it that I think, yeah, 100 years is definitely too long. Yeah. <laughs> That, that's a reasonable time frame, right? <laughs> yeah, we move slow, but it shouldn't be that slow. Right, yeah. right. Well, let's talk a little bit about your book. Tell us a little bit um, what inspired you to write it, and uh, and who are you when you th when you think of your audience for the book? Who's the audience? Well, that's a great question. I, I think part of what inspired me to write the book was actually around the convocation and helping parishes to move into a more missionary framework outlook in their ministries. And so at first I thought, you know, I'm going to write this book for people who are on parish councils, finance committees, your trustees, your catechists, people who are already engaged in the life of the church, but need some hope and renewal around their part to play. And at a, at a time in the church where a lot of people are leaving, uh, the message that I wanted to kind of... Um, come through the book was don't leave but lead and step forward to lead the church that you love for Jesus Christ and then um, I wrote it you know I think I began on March 9th and I finished on June 23rd it just literally poured out of me mm. and then I sat on it for a bit and then um, as I spoke to some folks about it and I in fact I spoke to people like my own husband who his really only point of contact with the Catholic Church is at Sunday Mass and I thought what can I have him read that helps him understand his role um, as a baptized member of the church in terms of what that looks like as missionary discipleship? How do I help him understand that? Because unless he's going to classes or getting some formation, he's not that, that conversation is kind of bypassing him. So I went back and I kind of broadened the audience for the book. For It's a book that I can hand my husband, who has no ministerial or theological formation, and he can understand, okay, at baptism, um, the wellspring of um, discipleship comes from that sacrament. And as it grows, um, you're responsible. You're co-responsible um, in terms of leading uh, for the church you love. And then I thought about our catechists, who are the backbone of our church, our funeral lunch ladies. And so I wanted to put something in everybody's hands that was very simple. So the, the, the title of it is Start With Jesus, but then the subtitle is How Everyday Disciples Can Renew the Church. Because I, I want people to feel that in their simple, ordinary, extraordinary witness, that they can renew the church that they love to, starting at their parish. 
And that's why the whole focus of the book is around renewing our parishes. And and in the book, you say it's really less about programs, but more about process, people, and culture. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think we, you know, culture... Um, Culture is something that we've started to talk about in our parishes, um, especially here in the Diocese of Green Bay. But what is the culture of your parish and how is that shaped? And uh, recently somebody said, you know, culture is shaped by what you celebrate and what you tolerate. And so I, there's an analogy I use in the book, and it's a very human one. But I remember first coming to the United States and um, I started eating all the lovely food that's here. And all I just remember <laughs> having this moment like two months later, I tried to put on my jeans and like they wouldn't button. And just like... Um, We've all been there. Yeah, we've all been there. Uh, that kind of unnoticed weight loss kind of crept up on me. It didn't happen overnight. And so I think we want to... Um, look at the issues that we are facing in the Catholic Church with the lens of, oh, it only happened in the last 10 years or 20 years or Vatican II or whatever. But the seed of what's happened in the church in terms of renewal has been a steady, incremental um, series of changes. And our culture is shaped by that. So really grappling with the culture is really important. And then um, one of the metaphors that I use in terms of focusing on people is that's Jesus's methodology. Jesus um, used um, a very simple process to form those that he walked with. And we have a very, very programmatic response to discipleship and catechesis. And so um, I use this um, I use this image a lot. I think we want, when we look at parish renewal, we think it's like baking a cake. And you can't really tinker too much with a recipe for a cake before it goes wrong. And so we've taken the recipe of what's worked at one parish and we've tried to graft it onto our, our own parish without being attentive to the local culture. And yeah, there's things we can learn. Um, but what I want to suggest to parishes is that your culture is more like a stew. And that's a very Irish word or a casserole if you're in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. But when you open your refrigerator, what goes into that stew is determined by what you have on hand. And so the culture of your parish is often determined by the people and the processes that you already have in place. And that is your best resource and your best way of charting a missionary path forward. And so the book sets up simple ideas parishes can do, but it really tries to move them beyond just tweaks um, into really looking at some large-scale changes that their parishes can, can make. That makes so much sense because in so many things that we do, we talk about best practices, but the best practice that works in one parish may not work Correct. at another parish. The dynamic is different. The culture is different. Sometimes it doesn't work from state to state or from town to town. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I think also, you know, the name of your parish, I, I make this point too, but the name of your parish should tell a little story about what um, what what people can expect to feel in your parish. So, sure. um, you know, the... Uh, St. Catherine Drexel is going to, should feel different than perhaps, um, you know, Saints Peter and Paul. And so I tell parishes to tap into their best resources, which is their people. And the metaphor that I use as well, I use a lot of them because I'm Irish and we tell stories a lot. <laughs> You're a great storyteller. <laughs> um, is that conversion is a process which happens from the inside out. And I believe that parish renewal will also happen from the inside out by renewing our people first. And I think we've tried to renew from the outside in, and it's less effective because the culture will always eat the strategy. And, the, the, you know, you hear that expression a lot, culture eats strategy for breakfast or lunch. Right. But 
if you can look at the culture that you have and the people that you have in place, then you can make better decisions in, in the light of the gospel to start with Jesus. And so it's very centered on the person of Jesus and what he did in terms of changing the culture because he was the master at it. Mm-hmm. I mean, he took the dominant culture of the day and he really turned it on its head. He knew when to use the culture effectively and, um, and maybe uses the wrong word, but he knew when to uh, baptize the culture for Christianity and when to walk with the culture and then when to call out the culture and then when to, when to upend the culture and throw a few tables over. Mm-hmm. But he was a master at, at looking at the culture he already had and then activating the gifts of core disciples that he could walk with and that's a a much longer and larger process than than running um a programmatic model which is event driven and as soon as a a more glamorous or flashy event comes along your people will go to that so right right and and jesus was also so good at getting to know people too and getting to know their gifts and i guess uh, what i'm hearing you say is that's part of this process getting to know the people in your parish eliciting those gifts and getting them engaged oh for sure i really believe that our best gift in our parishes is our people i mean the gift of the eucharist is person it's so personal and um, I, I, I have a quote that I've used several times. If Eucharist is the heart of your parish, then prayer is the heartbeat. And being in dialogue with people, learning their stories, praying with them, um, having them share their struggles in the light of the gospel, that's the sweet spot for many of our parishes. But it's more time if in the intensive. It's, um, it moves slower because it moves at the pace of the other person. And very much, um, I think sometimes our parishes are set up to reflect who we want people to be versus where people really are at. Makes so much sense. So, Julianne, in your book, um, you say, Becoming familiar with the kerygma is essential to us all, but especially to our parish teams, so that it can be woven into the tapestry of parish life. Tell me about that word, kerygma. Am I, am I pronouncing that? You are, yeah, right. kerygma. Yeah. So, um, the kerygma is um, is the Greek word word that comes that means to proclaim or herald, and in every tradition around the world, you have this um, idea of like the town crier. I mean, think about like the birth of. Uh, I think it's Archer, the newest little prince of uh, Prince Harry and Meghan. Um, they still announced his birth with a town crier on a scroll. But town criers are found everywhere from Massachusetts to the Congo. Like sharing news, announcing news is a part of who we are. And um, the kerygma is, is a fancy word for saying to proclaim or herald, but it's the, it's the nugget, it's the core. I often describe it to kids, for example, as the pop as the kernel that goes pop. Pope Francis says that um, unless we proclaim the kerygma, all aspects of our evangelization and discipleship work are going to be sterile because the foundation isn't there. The kerygma is the um, initial ardent proclamation uh, by which somebody is overwhelmed and brought to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's the basic story. It's not the, you know, it's not, doesn't have all the elements of it. It has the core message of salvation. And in the Diocese of Green Bay, we use a very simple five-part framework. Um, we talk about creation and God, God is love and has created me for relationship with him. And then there's the fall. Um, and uh, I have broken God. I've broken my relationship with God through my sin. And then so it's creation, fall, and then there's the redemption and salvific action where Jesus Christ comes to save us. And then Jesus Christ offers us this new life um, 
as a, as a, a pathway to eternal happiness and life. And then the last is the recreation the Holy Spirit has poured into us. If you look at, for example, how the Bible is structured, if you look at... Um, if you look at, for example, the Acts of the Apostles even, you'll find very, very clear snapshots of charismatic proclamation where um, people were told this good news. And this good news was the foundation before all the other news was shared, before all the other teachings were shared. And they come to realize, God loves me. Um, after everything I've done, I can have this new life. And so... Um, it's uh, it's unless we get to grips and unless I think that charisma is embedded in all of our parish activities, I think we're going to continue to teach and catechize people who don't have that foundation in place and aren't ready for the message. Mm. And in fact, the studies would all bear that out. Many mm -hmm. Catholics, for example, don't believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Right. So talking to them about... Um, you know, what is the Eucharist and why Jesus lived and died and, and bringing the Eucharist into that can be very powerful for people. Um, I found that, uh, I was talking about the Krigman, a lady stood up, you're making this way too complicated. <laughs> and I said to her, well, how would you share the Krigman? She said, very simple. God did, or I was, God did, I am. So I'll repeat that again. I was, God did, I am. But what she said was, I was, and she described what her life was like, and she used the words hot mess there, mm. and made us all chuckle, and then said, this is what God did for me in those moments. And then, um, I am, and uh, this is how I am now. It's really, this the word we would use is the Paschal mystery. It's the, the dying, the rising, um, to life, to new life in Jesus Christ. That's the charisma. It's a word that Pope Francis has been using a lot. And so this recovery of the charisma is really new for us, I think, in terms of what it looks like in our parishes. Beautiful explanation. Um, Julianne, when you spoke at ICSC as the yeah. keynote maybe a year ago or so, a yeah. year and a half ago, um, and I think also you went over this when you were in Miami, you talked about um, some of our programs don't necessarily penetrate the folks in the pews because we expect that their level of education or understanding of the faith mm -hmm. is at a level that, that that they may not be at yet. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when you look at, so your book, as I read through it, seem, seems to have something in it for everybody. Like, where does a pastor get started these days when he looks at a, a congregation, a community that is at all different kinds of levels in their yeah. education? and formation as disciples of Christ? It's a great question. I think we do really well as a Catholic Church with our catechesis and our faith formation and our educational initiatives. But what we're realizing is that most of our folks are in pre-evangelization, which means that they have not had a significant encounter with the Lord that they can articulate. And so it's awakening and reawakening of those folks in their faith. And I would tell a pastor, if you look at your parish, for example, and you look at where your resources are from a personnel standpoint, from um, a financial standpoint, they're oriented to presume that most people are in a further stage of formation than they actually are. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, the classic case of they went through the RCIA program and why aren't they here a year later? Or, I, you know, they went through sacramental prep to have their children baptized and we don't see them six months later. It's a sure sign that the programs that we have in place are not oriented to where people are actually are. And so I would say to the pastors that are listening um, and their staff is to start with Jesus. Look at what Jesus did. 
um, move away from one-time event, you have to do some social work, um, meaning um, social events and things like that, as a kind of a way to build people and to engage them. But there really isn't a strategy for engagement of a person that comes in with zero understanding of their faith and take them through a discipleship process. It kind of happens haphazardly in the parish, in a sense, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, charismatic homilies, um, addressing the question of, so what for your parishioners? So what difference does this make to my life? Strengthening opportunities for prayer. What's really interesting is if you look at research um, on the culture and where we're at and the high levels of anxiety and depression in the culture, Prayer and mindfulness is the is the huge thing. Well, Catholics have had a, we've had mindfulness part and parcel of our tradition without calling it that for 2,000 years. It's by having the Lord speak to us in prayer, by being attuned to his presence. It's providing those kinds of opportunities, but telling people that's what they are for. Not just presuming that people know what they're for. Mm -hmm. So I would say to a pastor, start there. Start with what Jesus did, how he formed his disciples, and then reorient your parish to that. I give um, three hinge points, if you will, for pre-evangelization. Healing, hope, and hospitality. For folks um, like my husband who are in an early stage of their faith, um, they, they want to be uplifted. The world is tough enough, and this isn't a message like a candy message where like it's a happy, clappy kind of, but it's a message that really enters into what people are struggling with and brings the light of the gospel into that. That's the hope. And the healing component, I think, is something that we really have to get to grips with. So much brokenness in our culture, so much addiction, and all of those kinds of things. Parishes have to be talking about these issues and providing opportunities for people to um, voice their concerns, to pray with somebody, and then the hospitality is just critical. So in terms of the hospitality, I, I... I've visited many parishes um, and say, how do you do with your welcoming and hospitality? Oh, we're really welcoming. Well, you're really welcome to the people that you know. Right. And, um, but like our signage at our, at our parishes often needs attention. People don't know where to go. If you were a visitor to a parish and you'd never been there before and you look at it with those eyes, you'll start to see that we're not as welcoming as we think we are. We have everything kind of set up for our insiders and the folks who come, but very little set up for those that come only periodically. And so, you know, uh, retitling rooms, cry rooms. I mean, that's just an awful term, but Mm. celebrating the life of children in the community and if families need a place to go, a family room. Mm -hmm. It's it's a small shift, but it it speaks something different in terms of hospitality. You know, in the book, I I talk about the small changes that you can make as a community to be um, uh, a welcoming community. But the one mistake I tell uh, parishes a lot is this is not about coffee and rolls. Like we've got donuts after mass on Sunday and we have a hospitality committee. It's really the entire culture of the parish that needs to shift because that hospitality sets the stage for an encounter with Christ. And if that's not present there, especially our younger generations just won't come back. In the book, you tell this great story about a pastor who first used that those words, healing, hope, and hospitality. Yep. Tell us that story. So this is an interesting one. So Father Dave um, had gotten to know... Um, just over messages and we had spent some time talking about things and he was assigned to a very, very rural parish and um, he would call and we would talk through things around strategy and how to engage people and I went out to visit him one day. There was nobody at the parish and he, um, he made an interesting comment to me. He said, you know, Julianne, when I am 
presiding and when I'm celebrating Mass, I look around and I see a sea of faces, parents who are tired, grandparents who are anxious and worried and have health concerns, and all the folks who are missing, everybody feels the weight of that. And he said, um, I realized that those folks there really needed hope. And he actually said this to me, they don't need to be scolded by me. <laughs> now, he said, I do, I need to build a relationship with them where I can talk to them about some hard truths. But primarily, he said, I need to use my homilies as a vehicle for hope. And then we talk through the welcoming piece and we talk through um, the healing piece and what that looked like. And his parish was um, centered in um, a community that was in the grip of the opioid crisis and some serious issues with alcohol and all different kinds of addiction that were showing up. And he started um, some uh, healing services and actually voicing in the intercessions at Mass the things that the community was struggling with. And people started to respond. And when he called me to come out to lead his parish mission, actually, I was kind of expecting what I had seen the first time, which was, uh, I said this, a community in the grip of rigor, rigor mortis, but it was a community that was really alive and had responded. And so this parish mission was packed. Um, for him, it had led up to this point where people were filled with hope and a new excitement. There was some serious he praying for healing. There was an acceptance within the community of those who'd been maybe marginalized because of their choices coming back and wanting to have um, some support. So he had some grief support groups going. He had um, some uh, folks doing some work around addiction ministries and um, uh, sorry, addiction ministries. And so he had uh, a community that was very much centered, gospel centered, but very much centered on what people were really struggling with. And they are just growing in leaps and bounds. And I'm so grateful to him for this insight because I probably would have missed it. And so um, our parish mission that year, I can tell your listeners, was H-O-P-E, Hope, Healing, Openness, Prayer, and Eucharist. And we did a night on each of those four things. And Beautiful. It was really neat. Yeah, it was a great opportunity. So, Julianne, the, the book is Start With Jesus. How, um, how should a parish council or a finance council, how should a group, if they wanted to uh, take a look at this book and maybe discuss it together, what's the best way to, to use your book? Well, this is really interesting because I recognized as I was writing and then rewrote it, there's actually two pathways in the church that you can go with the book. You can give it to a regular person, my husband, a friend, and they can read it. And actually, there's a whole series um, on Loyola Press's website, um, especially for those that are not in any, not connected to a parish, but want to grow in their faith and maybe are curious about that. And um, and the book has that split kind of within it. At the end of the chapter, there's um, something that you can work on personally personally in your life but then there's also a section that's created for parish teams and so parishes can come together and um, I recognize that a lot of what I say in the book which is insights gleaned from other parishes throughout the country is difficult for parishes it's often my grandmother had this expression it's hard to read a book when it's uh, so close to your face you just can't see the words and so the same often happens at our parishes and so I wanted to create a series of worksheets that parishes could use to um, strengthen their discussion and actually strategize a little bit around. So I created a, a set of printables that go with each section of the book for 
just ordinary people, or maybe you are a parish person and want to strengthen your faith, and then a whole section that parishes can use. And there's also a discussion guide, and all of those are 100% free. So um, regardless of whether you, you get the book or not, you can actually download them, and they talk you through some strategies. Oh, nice. Yeah, I wanted to give back to our parishes. They work yeah. so hard. Mm-hmm. So there's some really practical things in there. For example, there's, you know, is your parish praying? Mm-hmm. Well, what kind of prayer is happening at your parish? How would you, what kind of committees does your parish have? And how would you disciple those c- committees if they were considered small groups? Um, what does the culture of your parish actually look like? What, what, what's an assessment look like for that culture? So there's just helpful little tips that I've gleaned that might be helpful for parishes too. Beautiful. So the book, again, is Start With Jesus. Uh, Julianne, how can folks pick up a copy of this? So it's available at all great Catholic bookstores. I want to always point people to uh, shop local first because I think it's really important to support our Catholic bookstores. Um, Barnes & Noble and Amazon do carry it, but the best way to get it and the best value for for money, I think, is through Loyola Press, and they're doing group discounts, which is great. So loyolapress.com. Perfect. Julianne, thank you so much for being on the podcast again today. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for having me, Jim. God bless. God bless in your ministry. Good luck with this book. Thank you so much. I want to thank Julianne for being on our show this week. I'll post a link where you can purchase Julianne's book, Start With Jesus, and I encourage you to buy it. It's a great read. Thanks again, Julianne, for being on our show. Well, that's our show this week. Many thanks to the Changing Our World podcast team and to Pottery Studios for their support of our show. If you'd like more information about our show, please visit us at advancingourchurch.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Advancing Our Church is a production of Changing Our World, a fundraising and social impact consulting firm that has been advising both nonprofits and corporations for the past 20 years. For more information, please visit us at changingourworld.com. Well, that's it for me, everybody. Have a great week. Take care and God bless.